From Studio One at the worldwide headquarters of ESPN and from Studio HD in Atlanta, Georgia, this is Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and on Sirius XM Channel 80. Put my name up in the line. Everything went right for the Boston Celtics last night, and let's not mince words. They kicked the snot out of Philadelphia. But even in a win, sometimes coaches stay mad. Fitz and Harry, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and your smart speakers, Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. We have an, a very important update from Sterling, who does great work on this show. As I made a Star Wars analogy earlier about the fighters going around the large four-legged uh, transportation vehicles that we now know are called AT-ATs. Trying to figure out what it stands for. Sterling with the, uh, the update. It's an all-terrain armored transport. All-terrain armored transport. That's what an AT-AT is. Also, Sterling, wants you uh, meet up with me tonight? We'll go to uh, Star Wars trivia because apparently uh, you've got the knowledge. <laughs> I, I am in love with all of us. Also, we are over an hour into the show, and we have buried the lead that all of you can, frankly, kiss my tush when it comes to the Lord Stanley's Cup because last time I checked yesterday on air, y'all were telling me that the best player in the world was just going to take it to Vegas. Uh, Vegas. Well, now, who, who was telling you that? I like, mean— Evan, Evan, okay, you gotta you gotta put put an address on it. I mean, put a I'm name saying, on it. I'm just saying though, nobody was catching my back, and I keep telling you guys every time. Put an address on it. Who I'm did just, I say I was rooting for? I'm, I'm, Who did you, I say you, I was going you were, for? You were, you were a little you were a little on my side. A little on my side. A little. I little can't believe side. you, bro. You know, I'm just I saying. To, just wait till the Raiders mess it up again this year. Just I, I, wait. I went to a Hartford Wolfpack <laughs> game. That's an AHL hockey game last night, and it was ironic because it was Hart, Hartford taking on Providence. It was the Bruins farm team versus the Rangers farm team, and I just laughed at this show knowing that. Neither of your teams were in the playoffs, yet I was watching your farm systems duke it out for so the Calder Cup. Who, who won? Uh, well, Providence won the game, but Hartford has the lead in the series. So, you know, big big Friday night matchup ha- happening. Harry, you know what that means? It. Everybody well, should be worried because the future of the Bruins and the Wolfpack is very high because they're both in the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bruins down 2-1 in the series, but it was a heck of a game last night. A uh, heck of a game last night. The Vegas Golden Knights with the 6-4 win over Edmonton. So, Evan, if you want to come on board, I will see if they have a child's large jersey. Okay. Leon Dreisaitl still had four goals. Find a way we to gotta stop get, him. We got to get out to a game, dude. In a we, loss. We have, yeah. to, we have I mean, to get out to a game. Four Seriously. goals in a, in a loss. Yeah, yeah, I'm all in for that. They're, they're going to win the series. Okay. Okay. You want to put your money where your mouth is? Like, we got a lot. No. Okay. Ooh. Okay. That's, that's just no. I, mean. I don't make what you make. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, none of us have moving walkways in our house except for Harry, and that's just in my imagination. Excuse but me? Yeah, like Harry has a moving walkway that takes him from the west wing to the le- to the east wing. and uh, Well, that's the power of prayer. <laughs> that's the power of prayer. I do what the good man upstairs tells me to do. I've been living right, man. Oh, I've been fair. living right. Mor- n- normal people have like a southeast, west, north. He has just like southwest, northwest wings as well. That's I, how big his house is. I can neither confirm nor deny, but I've heard that the the, pa- the palace in Mario Brothers is actually smaller than what Harry lives in uh, down there. But that's all <laughs> going to pay off because when we have the one year anniversary of the show, Harry's going to get me uh, a engraved Rolex. Apparently, he's going to go full uh, James Harden, Joel. You know that's what? so nice of you, Harry. I'll be back, guys. I got to go poop. <laughs> And Harry has left the building. Oh, <laughs> uh, speaking of just storming off, that happened last night after the the Philly Boston game. And you would think that everybody in Boston would just be wildly excited. Well, Joe Mazzulla, the Celtics head coach, who did come under some fire, including fairly on this show for some of the uh, the, the approaching game one, uh, was quite adamant at the end that he didn't think people were talking about the right things in this game. Joe, what have the last forty eight hours been like for your team? Angry, pissed. And 
Did you like that? Did you like their yes. what was going on the last couple of days? Yes. Nobody wants to ask about all the adjustments we made from game one and game two. And that is Missoula just <laughs> walking off. I mean, just walking off. I mean, he's fired up, HD. I don't ever want to hear any nonsense about players and coaches not reading press clippings or watching Sports Center or this whole nine. Because obviously Joe Missoula had. He had to for him to be that pissed off, and rightfully so, because we really gave him hell from his game one performance as a head coach, especially late in the ball game, not trapping James Harden, allowing him to score 45 points. But whatever message he sent to his basketball team, they got the message because they were hitting on all cylinders, everybody except Jason Tatum. Yeah, but you know this so well from being in locker rooms. That tone doesn't change when the game ends. Right, like Missoula's trying to set a tone for the whole series. So yep. he comes out in a win. I'm angry. I'm angry because you disrespected us. I'm angry because you're not asking the right questions. I'm ang- I'm just mad at all of it. Our whole team is – he's trying to create a whole tone around the Celtics, and I don't blame him for that. If it works, like it's part of his job as a coach, part of every coach's job, is to understand the pulse of your team and figure out how to get the, m- the best out of all of them, right? So if yep. this is the tactic he thinks that will get under the skin of the Celtics and help him, I got no problem with him coming out and being angry and knocking his chair over and storming off in a press conference because thats he's not talking to us. He's talking to the guys in that locker room. Exactly. If, if it's, I thought the Boston Celtics as a team came out more assertive, more so than they did in game one. Right? Their defense was a, a lot better. They, uh, they forced James Harden to, to be two for 14 from the field. NB wasn't really a main factor in that game, even though he was coming back from an injury and haven't, haven't played in, in two weeks. They really put their stamp on things and it's just amazing to me that the Boston Celtics, your superstar player in Jason Tatum, can you know have seven points and you still win the game uh, by twenty plus points. Like that, that's phenomenal to me. But that lets me know that their attention to detail and their antennas got perked up a lot more, more so than it was in that first game. And they got the message not only from their head coach but from all of us in the media. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to think that that means they're all listening to Fitz and Harry because they frankly should be. I mean, we all know that over and over again. But you mentioned the fact they didn't get enough from Tatum. But the rise of Jalen Brown just continues. I mean, he was absolutely yes. unstoppable in the yes. beginning of this game. And then he was able to sort of almost go in cruise control for the back third of it because they didn't need more. From it. It, was, it was really interesting to watch his approach. It was like he was going to be the one that came out and said, we are going to play this way tonight. And I, I thought that was a real strong statement towards sort of the assertiveness you're talking about. Like he was the star that came out and said, put it on my back. I will carry us to victory in this game. And it's crazy that I'm about to say this, but when you have a player like Jason Tatum and then you have a guy like Jalen Brown, he is the, I would say, the rich, rich version of a Robin to Jason Tatum's Batman, right? But when you have depth on your roster like the Boston Celtics have, another team that had that depth as well was the Milwaukee Bucks, but they're no longer in the playoffs. But when you have that depth like the Celtics, where you can go to Jalen Brown and he have 25. You have Derek White, he can have 15. Marcus Smart can have 15. You know, Grant Williams coming off the bench and adding, you know, his 12 points. But the most important piece that they added to this team that wasn't there last year, in my eyes, Malcolm Brogdon, sixth man of the year. He was phenomenal in game one. And, and, and you know, we, ch- we chastised him about that, one, that turnover that he had late in that game versus Philly in game one. That was his only turnover of the game. He had zero turnovers last night, scored 23 points off the bench, 6 for 10 from the three-point line, 
But I think the addition of him being able to orchestrate things, especially when you don't want Marcus Smart to be the point guard and orchestrating things, has been phenomenal for the Boston Celtics, not only this entire season, but also during the, during the playoffs. Yeah, there's this moment with Brogdon where I found myself in, you know, whenever you have a bad, whatever it is you do, a bad show in our instance, used to be bad shows for me on stage for you, bad game. Uh, some For some guys, they live with you, girls too. They live with you for until the next time you get out there. There was a moment of Brogdon, I thought, that also was playing with a level of intensity and a level of I'm going to get that out of my mind that I thought was really impressive. You know, like it's easy to your point. We took one play out of a game that was for the most part, very good otherwise. And that's the play that's been over and over on sports center on get up on, yep. on first take. Like if, if he turns on ESPN at all, he's seeing that play. He's hearing about that play. We're talking about why is the ball in his hands in these moments? Like these are the things that are happening over the course of 24 hours for him to come back and show that the grapefruits that it takes to be able to come back and just put all that behind and then have that focused effort. I thought also speaks to where the Celtics are right now. They, they, they had plenty of reasons to collapse and instead it felt like they came in focused and, to your point, energetic, but also just like one mission, one team, one movement. It was really special to watch. Yeah, and let me tell, let me tell the listeners this, and a lot of y'all probably know this, a lot of y'all probably don't know this as well. Malcolm Brogdon would be a starter on majority, not some NBA teams, majority NBA teams in the league right now. I think him being able to sacrifice, and he talked about this before one of the Hawks games, being able to sacrifice and come off the bench and embrace his role shows other guys on that basketball team that they can sacrifice as well. So I thought that was phenomenal by him saying that, you know, during that Hawks series that uh, he probably could be a starter and, and be a, a damn meaningful one on any other basketball team. But the fact that he's sacrificing right now at this moment to come off the bench and then get six man of the year says a lot about him, his character, and his mindset, and his, and his, it's just his whole persona when it comes to the game of basketball and approach. The playoff action continues tonight. Lakers-Warriors, 9 p.m. Coverage begins on ESPN Radio at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We've talked about a lot of the players that have stepped up. Now, tonight, we get another game, too, in this pivotal series between the Lakers and Warriors with so much on the line. The question is, who needs to step up tonight? We'll answer that next. Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio. LeBron James and the Lakers steal home court advantage away from the Warriors with a huge Game 1 win in San Francisco. How will Golden State respond? Coverage begins tonight at 8.30 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN. You can also listen on the ESPN app and on Sirius XM Channel 80. Presented by Indeed. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. James and the Lakers steal home court advantage away from the Warriors with a huge Game 1 win in San Francisco. How will Golden State respond? Coverage begins tonight at 8.30 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN. You can also listen on the ESPN app and on Sirius XM Channel 80. Presented by Indeed. It's 
Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz. Harry, tell me I'm wrong. Like, I'll, you usually do if I am. Uh, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. The number of times, I've, so there are times that we finish our show and I think, man, maybe I'm just putting too much weight in something. Like, maybe this one thing is like, maybe it's not that big a deal. The Warriors and the Lakers is like the exception to this rule because I feel like everywhere I go, if I'm seeing my buddies just out and about, if I'm sitting at a bar out and about, everybody right now is talking about this series and it's because there's just a different, it doesn't feel like a second round game. So even though it's only game two of a second round game, and usually we can look at it and say, yeah, we'll see. It's not that simple because there's so much on the line. And particularly if you're the Warriors, your back's up against the wall knowing you've sucked on the road. You could go down 2 nothing to LeBron and AD. Like, people are going to have to step up. And it feels like everybody's wondering who that's going to be. Well, I think what we've seen from these players on the court, what we've seen from these coaches during that first game, uh, game one actually, it doesn't seem like a second-round playoff. It's, I agree with you 110%. It feels like a Western Conference Finals, and I take it to another notch. It actually feels like a Finals as, as well to me. But you look at the anticipation from fans, from media members. You look at LeBron. You look at Steph Curry. You look at the supporting cast, Anthony Davis. You see Klay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, and Draymond, and all these guys uh, that support these superstar players that you have for each team. It's bigger. And then you look at the legacy of Steph Curry, the legacy of LeBron. I think this is probably the most anticipated series in the playoffs thus far. And I think it's probably going to be the most watched as well. But when it comes to both of these teams, one of the things that that I do know, when you have two superstar players, two iconic players like you have in Steph Curry and LeBron, I think they're going to have both of their, their, their teammates, both all of their teammates, put on a probably the best show that we could possibly have. And I think the will to win by both of those guys, I think also trickles down to the rest of the players on both teams as well. Well, Steve Kerr is going to be one of the advantages in this series. You would think we give a lot of benefit of the doubt, both of us, to coaches in general. He's one of the best for a reason. He was asked at his press conference if it's more challenging to decide if they're going to play small ball. We all know the size issue, so this is what Kerr had to say strategically about their approach. I don't know that it's that more complex, really. I mean, we faced the same issues last year in the playoffs against Memphis and Boston, and, you know, you you make adjustments as you see fit. And um, so that might mean going smaller, getting another shooter on the floor, but time and score can dictate some of that. Um, Every game's so different, and and so you just have to go in um, with an open mind and and feel the game. But um, I think it's... It's a, it's a, because of the, the nature of our roster and the, and the makeup of our roster, it's a decision we've, we've had to make um, many times over the years. But, Harry, part of what makes sense about that is like, okay, cool, you want to try to not go small? What are you going to do? Try and beat them with size? Like, that's not even an option. <laughs> like, you can't change genetics. You don't have the size they have. Like, cute, you could try to go the other way, but for what? What you say, Draymond's not going to grow three or four inches I mean, overnight during this playoff series? Look, I, if I could find a way to grow three or four inches overnight, I would be Andre the Giant in about a week over here. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Well, I, I just think when you look at the Golden State Warriors and you look at what happened and transpired in game one, you're going to have to get more offensive threats out there on the court. So there are going to be times in game two where you're going to have to go small. Now, I really love the fact that Jermichael Green came in and was able to hit two threes because now if Anthony Davis is guarding him, 
he's going to have the mindset, you know what, I can't sit in this paint. I can't sag and wait for anything to come in the lane and try to block it. I got to get out here on this three-point shooter and try to make sure he doesn't have a clean look. That's what Jermichael Green brings to the table. I think also when you look at players like Andrew Wiggins, I think he has to step up a lot more. He had 15 points, but I thought he could have made a bigger imprint on that basketball game more so than he did in the first one. I think he can't be one for five from the three-point line. If he's getting open looks, he's going to have to knock those down. His percentage from the three-point line is going to have to be way better than it was in game one. But also, I think he needs to be way more aggressive, man. Stop getting the basketball and just looking to pass and deferring to Steph and Clay. You're going to get your open looks. Shoot them, knock them down with confidence. And that's very understandable because you, you, you have a Steph Curry who came off of game seven versus Sacramento, you know, scoring a 50-piece. You have Stephen Clay who's shooting the hell, shooting the lights out of the basketball in game one along with Jordan Poole. But don't let that put the blinders on yourself and minimize you and what your offensive game could be on that side of the court as well. Yeah, it's aggressive is really interesting. I love that you use that word because I think Draymond is a huge key to this, and I know it's not oh, a hot yes, take, Lord. but like when you talk about Draymond, you're talking about somebody that's going to have to bring aggressiveness in a way that picks everybody up, but he's also going to have to play with control, knowing that all eyes are always on everything he does. So finding the line that helps him, but when I say finding the line, there's also some irony in it. This is a Golden State team in game one that shot six free throws. Six, right? Like, whereas the Lakers shot 29. They're going to have to figure out how to be aggressive offensively in a way where they get into the lane. They understand it might get sent back to you, but you're going to have to start creating contact. You're going to have to try and force something in the lane that forces them to, to let you get to the lane. But then the, also, the other part of it to the line, I should say, the other part of it is you're going to have to play with some control defensively because you can't have this disparate, disparity in free throws and still win this game. Like that is a When you think about the fact that they made five, Golden State made five free throws, the Lakers made – 25. That's a 20-point difference when you just nail it down to that. So finding the right line between aggressive and smart is going to be really difficult for everybody involved. And I think that's very, very important for the Golden State Warriors because who can't afford to get in foul trouble for the Warriors? You can't have Steph Curry afford to get in trouble, in which he got a uh, he got his first foul early in that game. So what does that do? Now you can't really be as, uh, as aggressive as you want to the rest of the first quarter and probably the, the beginning of the second quarter because you got that early foul. Draymond Green had to sit out uh, a good portion of time. I thought it was late in the second quarter because he had got three fouls. Mm -hmm. So all these things have to be mindful for the Golden State Warriors. Klay Thompson is another guy that can't afford to get in foul trouble because they need these guys' offense. And they're uh, predominantly more so are the offense for the Golden State Warriors. So they have to be mindful of that as well. But on the other end, on the offensive end, you got to go and go to the basket, man. Uh, aggressively, not throwing up some nonsense. Dr Draymond just threw some balls up at the basket the other day, and I'm like, man, did he even intend on making the basket? Because they came nowhere close to going in. Have the mindset you're going and driving to the basket, not looking for a foul, but going up strong to make the basket, and potentially you'll get fouled. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Draymond and Kevon Looney, two guys that I think are huge keys to what they need to do when they are giving up so much size, what can those two guys do? The NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio tonight. Warriors host the Lakers, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations and, of course, on Sirius XM Channel 80. We'll get back to the NBA, but coming up, everyone's asking if Aaron Rodgers is about to go on a scorched earth tour. What if I told you there's another former MVP who's set up to be even better? 
Fitz and Harry, the podcast. I don't know if Jalen Hurts in this contract is going to move the needle one way or the other for Lamar Jackson. Well, there's no way that the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson couldn't be tracking what was transpiring in Philadelphia. Does it move him as far as what his demands are or doesn't it? It becomes apparent that the Watson deal with its full guarantees was an aberration. So it becomes more and more difficult for Lamar Jackson to go after it. If you're Lamar, you're going to have to look at that and say, okay, maybe I did misjudge what the market may be for the quarterback position. We spent a lot of time talking about Aaron Rodgers. And the possibility that this could be his revenge tour. What if he's not the only former MVP that's flat out ticked off? What if there's another MVP out there ready to show the world that he never should have been doubted? And that MVP might actually have a huge strategic advantage. That player? Lamar Jackson. It's Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel Lady, Harry Douglas. Jason Fitz and Lamar Jackson for the first time today spoke to the media since signing his massive contract. This is what he said, Harry, about how excited he is to work with his new teammates in Baltimore. I'm very eager. I'm very eager to live on, to be honest with you. you know, I, I, told, I think I told someone, like, man, I want to throw for, like, 6,000 yards with the weapons we have. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm, I'm not an individual award type of guy or stat watcher, you know, I just want to do that, you know, because no one ever done it, and I feel like we have the weapons to do it. You know, we got explosive guys. Um, and like Coach said, Nelson, you know, the new addition, um, Zay, OBJ, and we got Bateman going to be 100% healthy, dude, going to be healthy, you know. So it's going to be – can't forget about Mark. I can't forget about my boy Mark. <laughs> and, you know, likely, so it's just can't wait to get rolling. <laughs> I can't stop laughing because – his his personality, man, is just amazing to me. You could tell he's excited. You could tell he's missed his teammates. He want he wants to get back to work, but he also wants to pass the football effectively and have that be a large and a big portion of the Baltimore Ravens offense this season, in which it will be because they do have a new offensive coordinator in Todd Munkin. Right, that was the deficiency. I won't say in Lamar Jackson's game, but in the play calling for the Baltimore Ravens since he's been the quarterback there in 2008, since 2018. Now this season going into 2023, he has an opportunity with the weapons of an OBJ, drafting a Zay Flowers, bringing over a Nelson Aguilar, but having a, a Bateman healthy, a Duvernay healthy, and we all know about the two tight ends. I think Isaiah likely is going to be a huge, a better portion of this offense this season as well. He has the weapons to be able to go out there from the quarterback position and sit in the pocket and deliver the football to those guys and allow them to make plays. Yeah, well, not only does he have the uh, the weapons, he has a huge strategic advantage in my mind. You know this. Like, yep. How often when you're getting ready for the season, what do you do? You break down the film of what you expect. How do we have any idea what to expect from Todd Munkin, the new offensive coordinator? Sure, you could go back and look at some of his college film, but are we really going to look at the college concepts and presume that that's what he's going to come out and run in the NFL? We have 
No idea. So every tendency you've ever seen from Lamar, you got to throw away. Every tendency you've seen from this offense, you got to throw away. And all you're going to do in the in the first month, you're going to be in complete read and react mode, right? Like you're not going to be able to know. Well, if they shift here and this this guy moves over here, it means that they're going that. Like you just won't know in the beginning. They're going to have the advantage of the unknown in the first month of the season, which I think even as they're getting their timing down, gives them a massive advantage over the teams that are trying to figure out what the hell all of it means. So I could see the Ravens starting off huge simply because it's tougher to game plan for an opponent you don't know. Now, I will say this too, though, Fitz, because you don't have a team like the Baltimore Ravens who've rushed the football so effectively over the last few years and just say, you know what, we're going to be pass happy. No, you're going to still resort to that run game because you're going to get a J.K. Dobbins that's healthy now Mm. as well this season. So you're still going to run the football, but I think more so when you can have a balanced attack – that's when defenses are really thrown off. You, you're a balanced uh, attack. You can run, you can pass, but then you throw a dynamic quarterback into the mix as well, like we've seen in Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts, because they were balanced, right? Offensively, passing and running. You have a guy like Lamar who can be that run threat while being a balanced offense. That's a scary scene, man. You know you've got analytics guys studying, okay, third and two with this offensive coordinator and this quarterback means Ooh. that this percentage of players are going here instead of there. That's the stuff that I think – because you're right. They're still going to have commitments to doing certain things that Lamar does that nobody else can do better. And they're still going to have commitments to running the football. It's been – through all the injuries they've had, they've been able to persevere through that because of their commitment to being a physical running football team at times. They're still going to have a great tight end that is an every-down, oh-my-God weapon, right? Like, they have some pieces around Lamar that they'll bring back. You know they're going to utilize them. It's the tendencies, the the little things that we saw last year with certain teams that just – always ran uh, – I think it was the Titans last year that every time they faced second and ten throughout the course of the entire season, they ran the football, whatever it was. There were there are statistical tendencies that teams will st- will study. You won't have that here. So there's a, a little advantage to me that if you see a guy go in motion, you, you might have thought last year that meant one thing. This year could mean something totally different. And you're doing that on a team that also adds Zay Flowers, who I know at the draft, as we were doing the show – you love like that's just another explosive weapon that they're going to have the advantage of figuring out how to use while nobody knows how they're doing it. Yeah, Zay Flowers was was my favorite wide receiver coming out in this draft. And when you look at this offense, right, that Todd Munkin is going to be running. I understand he had Stetson Bennett, but Stetson Bennett is not no damn Lamar Jackson. You think? <laughs> I understand. You know, he had Jameis Winston down there in Tampa when Munkin was down there with Dirk Cutter as the head coach, but Jameis Winston is not no damn Lamar Jackson. You're going to get this offense that's going to be balanced on top of Lamar Jackson, who is one of the most, if not the most dynamic playmaker in the National Football League. So that's going to be a thing for defensive coordinators to be able to deal with. It's going to keep them up late at night. It's going to keep defensive players up, and it's going to make them and force them to study more film uh, on Lamar when they finally do get it. But if you're facing them game one, Good luck to you. And I, I love the idea of having an offensive coordinator. No matter what Munkin did with Tampa Bay before, that's so different. That whole organization is so different. I love the idea that he's been sitting in a lab basically for the last month saying, I could do this with Lamar and I could do this mm-hmm. with Lamar. Like, I, in, in my mind, it's like drawing on little napkins. I'm going to move this guy here and then this guy's going to be able – Like, I, I think there's something joyful in watching that. It's one of the things that we watched. If you watch this year, Mike McDaniel and his work pre-snap and throwing guys everywhere in motion confused everybody and people were trying to figure out – 
what it meant for Tua and, and how it was going. There's a reason Tua was an MVP candidate before he got hurt, partially because Tua was playing very well. Also partially because it was an offensive mind that was like, ah, I know how to use all of these tricks and how to use all of these different players uniquely in a way that nobody's but, but, but ready Vince, for. It, it, it's, it's the stuff that a lot of people I don't think think about. When you're shifting, now you're making a defense change their calls. Now you're motioning very fast with a speedster after you're shifting. Now the defense has something else and have the eye candy. Then you have a dynamic quarterback that can hand it off or keep it, or you have that quarterback that can deliver the football to these playmakers. So it's so much a defense has to think about before the football is even snapped. I swear so to God. advantage offense in my eyes. I swear to God, it's one of my favorite things about watching games with former players is if you see the chess match of, well, last time they put this guy in motion and this guy in motion and he went over there, it meant this. But this time, it means that. And those are the moments that with Lamar, man, I, a monk is going to have a huge advantage early on. I'm excited to watch this Ravens offense. I'm excited to see what Lamar does. And I'm mostly excited that we could just close a chapter of, of what was obvious angst between the organization and the star player. And now we can see what they can all do together when that is just off the plate. All right, we'll keep breaking down the Lamar news as he spoke today for the first time. But one trend in the NBA playoffs that's being completely overlooked. We've got some stats that will blow your mind about the MVP next. Fitz and Harry continuing on ESPN Radio and Sirius XM Channel 80. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. Playoffs. 20 triples for the Celtics in game two as they blow out Philadelphia. Uh, tonight we flipped the script. I thought we did a great job overall. That's one game. It doesn't mean anything if there's no carryover. Continuing coverage of the NBA playoffs. Sometimes a stat can be really arbitrary. And you think it's showing you something until you realize it's actually not. We went down that rabbit hole today. And through the process of trying to figure out one stat, we found some real answers about Joel Embiid, the MVP, and the Philadelphia 76ers. Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Harry Douglas, Jason Fitz, HD. Uh, this morning, as we were getting ready for our show, uh, we we saw this nugget, and producer Devin came out with this that uh, was really extraordinary, and it's Joel Embiid's stats this postseason so far. Something really important here is that he's averaging 18.8 points per game. The points per game drop-off from the regular season, where he averaged 14.3 points more, is currently the largest of any player in the playoffs. Only two instances in the last 30 years of a regular season scoring leader making the playoffs but not being in the top 10 in points per game of the playoffs, Embiid last year, Embiid this year. So it started this rabbit hole of what's wrong with Embiid? Why does the production drop off? And I will credit our great stats and info group. We gave them a bunch of questions all based on one theory that Harry Douglas immediately said. Harry said, I will trust my eyes. And Harry, what was your immediate reason for why these points per game were down? He's getting doubled. He's getting doubled. Um, he got doubled a lot last year. got doubled a lot this year. And the most frequent one, uh, or the last one I've seen, was the series against the Brooklyn Nets where they went small a lot. Went to a, uh, Coach Vaughn went to a small lineup. And basically every time Joel Embiid caught the basketball, 
he was doubled immediately. So it was forcing him to make quicker decisions, number one, because you have smaller guys doubling you, and you just don't want to have turnover after turnover. But it was also forcing him to get the ball quickly to open guys, to get the best shot, you know, from his supporting cast. And you don't want them forcing up shots and shooting bad shots when other guys are wide open because they are in the National Basketball Association for a reason. And if you get an opportunity to shoot a warm-up shot, you will hope Joel Embiid, in which he did, would pass it to those guys and allow them to be able to knock it down. So what's interesting is we went to Stats and Info, and we asked our guys behind the scenes to, to help us crunch all the numbers we could. And when I mean all the numbers, we gave them scenario after scenario. Because to put this in perspective, right now, Embiid's 18.8 points per game this postseason would be the second lowest by a regular season scoring champion ever. The only season lower was in 1956. Like, that's what we're talking about from a drop-off. Only to find out that Harry Douglas is not just right, he's damn right. This postseason, he's been, Embiid, has been doubled on 40% of the field goals he's made. If you go back to last postseason, two straight years, so we really wanted that. Last postseason, he was doubled on 33 of his 161 field goal attempts. That's a lot. In fact, if you look at it, he's been doubled already right now on only 48 field goal attempts. He's been doubled more than Steph, Devin, Tatum, Brown, Durant, Jokic, LeBron, AD, all of them who have substantially more field goal attempts. So it speaks to what you're saying. There is truth here. The playoff book on Joel Embiid is written, and that book is defensively double him, force something to happen, and then see what happens. And it's causing a tremendous drop in his production's point per game. And it's something that the 76ers are going to have to figure out how to work around. And I, and I would even say this. I'll add this to it, though, Fitch, too, because those are the numbers for him being double when he's shooting field goals or attempting them, right? Um, we're not even talking about when he's catching the ball in certain spots and passing it because of double teams. So those numbers will probably be shot up even that much more because of that. But for Philly, when you get to a point, I don't think the Boston Celtics are going to do it as much as we've seen the Brooklyn Nets. But when you do have those moments, let's just say Joe Mazzulla said, you know what, we're going to force the supporting cast of the Philadelphia 76ers, and we're not going to let this you know, 2022-2023 MVP award winner beat us by himself. We're going to force him to kick the ball out and force other guys to hit shots. I think the only thing that Philly can do is hope their guys make the damn shots because they're probably going to be wide open ones. You just got to trust they're going to make it. Yesterday in the game last night, James Harden didn't make his shots. You're right. And by the way, Wendy, uh, Brian Windhorst talked about on Get Up this morning, if the Sixers were going to make an adjustment and go through James Harden going into game two, this is what Wendy had to say. People. I don't think they have a choice. I think they have to go with Embiid. I think okay. that's the way they played the whole year. I know that there was this concept out there last night that maybe it was a mistake. And I'm telling you, we ran this by Doc Rivers. We ran this by Joel. That is not the way they're going to play. If they're going to go down this series, they're going to go down with the MVP. I don't think they really ran it through Embiid last night, though. Again, I would say anecdotally, without having like the, the play sheet, I think they went to him on the elbow and the nail maybe three or four times the whole game. That's their offense. They didn't get to it. Part of it might have been because they want the James was so successful in game one. Part yeah. of it might have been the, the Celtics were taking it away. But on Friday night, which is going to be crazy, tomorrow night in Philly, he's going to get the trophy. Adam Silver is going to be there. I suspect you will see a lot more of Joel Embiid with his hands on the ball running the offense. Harry, this is the number that really stands out to me that's kind of staggering. Like I said, of his 48 field goal attempts so far this year, 
Joel Embiid this postseason. Joel Embiid has been doubled on 19 of them. You want a quick you want a quick comparison. Jokic on 150 field goal attempts doubled twice. Now everybody's going to say, but Jokic is a great passer. You can't double Jokic because he'll take advantage of it. Okay. AD on 119 field goal attempts doubled five times. Five times. <laughs> you talk about the difference in the way teams are defending Joel Embiid, and it does speak to exactly what you're saying. I don't know that there's a way for them to change that, but there should be. If your big guy is getting doubled at an alarming rate, that should create opportunity for somebody else. And the 76ers are not a team devoid of talent elsewhere. Like, there are other guys that can shoot. They have got to step up as teammates around Embiid because it is obvious that this is – I mean, you and I know it. If our stats and info group can find it for us, you damn well better know that the coaching staffs of their opponents know it. This is the book. So now if you're Philly, you got to figure out how to break the book open. And the only way to do that is for everybody else to shoot better. And I'll say, uh, MB getting double is rightfully so, though, Fitz, because when you have a guy that's 6'10", 6'11", the, uh, has the weight that he has, can shoot the three ball, can shoot the mid-range, can put you in a triple threat position, that means pass, dribble, or shoot at any given time, can play with his back to the basket, can play with his face to the basket, can shoot free throws at a high percentage. When you have a guy like that that's dominant and there's a reason why he's the MVP award winner, Yes, you're going to try to go out in, in, in games and double him, but the supporting cast have, have to be able to lift him up. And I, I'm going to take it back to the Toronto series a year ago, right? Uh, the first series that they had. And in game one, Embiid only had 19 points. But that can be misconstrued by people to say Embiid had a drop-off. Well, Tyrese Maxey had 38. Tobias Harris had 26, 26. James Harden had 22. See, when your supporting cast can eat, now a lot more of that pressure is off of you because those guys are balling and making shots because of the 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 greatness of yourself. Yeah, this is the the wild nugget that we've sort of stumbled on. And I'll be honest with y'all. In the beginning, it was going to be a raging debate. You know, is there a problem with Joel Embiid? The numbers show you that there isn't a problem with Joel Embiid. There's a problem with Philadelphia being able to adjust to the way that Joel Embiid is being defended. And that is going to be the ultimate thing that now we know we will look for for the entire run of the rest of the playoffs. Because if we know it, they know it. The question is, how will the Celtics take advantage of it? We'll keep breaking down the NBA playoffs for you next. Fitz and Harry on ESPN Radio. Fitz and Harry, the podcast. 